gather, O God, to greet the risen Savior this day. We are a people who have banked our eternities. We are staking the very days of our eternity on what was accomplished by Jesus Christ for his people. And so we come to greet you, O risen one, the one who is the Alpha and the Omega, the King of the universe, the King of kings. We come to bow down to the one who lived the life that we should have lived and died the death that we should have died. And because he has, there is liberty, there is freedom from sin, there is there is victory for us, his people, for whom he has shed every drop of that rich red royal blood of his, so that we might know sin no more, so that we as a people might live lives that are so different, so so qualitatively changed because of the work of the Holy Spirit within us. We have had a heart of stone removed and put in its place a heart of flesh. And so as people who have been bought with a price, we come to greet thee. We come to love thee. We come to adore thee. We come to worship thee, O Jesus. And I pray that you will be pleased by what you see here today. Thank you for all that you have accomplished for a sinner such as I. And as sinners, all of us with dark sides, all of us who are broken, we come to once again with, with conviction to lay hold of the accomplished work of Jesus Christ for us. And now, Father, in response to the great work that you have wrought for sinners, we give. It is our privilege to do so. There is not a, not a duty or an oughtness. Our giving is a reflection of our love. And so, Father, from hearts that have been redeemed, from hearts that love to cheerfully give, take every dime and use it to announce and proclaim this glorious gospel of ours from pole to pole. We commit ourselves to that and do so in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. May I invite your attention to 1 Corinthians 15, which is Paul's great treatise, his great apologetic on the resurrection. Uh, if you know something about 1 Corinthians 13, you know that's the chapter on love. Well, 1 Corinthians 15 is the chapter on the resurrection. And I, the whole chapter is devoted to that topic, but I am going to only read you uh, eight verses. Beginning at verse 12, we'll read through verse 19, and then we'll read verse 32. You follow in your copies as I read you Paul's great treatise from his treatise on the resurrection. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead... How do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. 
And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. If in the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me? If the dead do not rise, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. It was a crime-solving game. Clue. Remember it? The, um, the case file was kept in the middle of the game board with three little cards tucked into this envelope. Inside this envelope were three cards that told you who did it, how they did it, and where they did it. It, of course, was some poor slob had been murdered who doesn't even get a name. You know, that's not true. He, does, he, he, he was given a name. His name was Mr. Body. Mr. Body has been murdered. And so, um, who done it? Where'd they do it? And how'd they do it? Was it done by Mr. Green? Colonel Mustard? Was it Professor Plum? Or Mrs. Peacock? Perhaps Mrs. White? Or the voluptuous Miss Scarlet? Was it done in the conservatory, the ballroom, the study, the kitchen, the dining room, the billiard room, the hall, the lounge, or perhaps the library? And then, was he killed with a revolver, with a knife, with a wrench, a lead pipe, or a rope, or perhaps the cruelest of all? A candlestick. <laughs> you know, gang, early in the game, known as Clue, you, um, you didn't have a clue as to uh, the answers to those questions. But as the game wore on, you, you figured out more and more of it. But it wasn't until the end of the game that you had all the answers. Life, not, not the game, but the real thing. Life is a, is a lot like being in the middle of a game of Clue. Because, uh, there are some things you know, but, um, but there's a whole lot that is sheer mystery. Uh, we're, we're here we are standing in the middle of life, 
And, and some of the questions that you face are, are, they'll drive you crazy. There's, there's situations in which we find ourselves, uh, where we wonder what exactly is going on. We wake up in the morning and we have a headache and we think, it's a brain tumor. And then we conclude, no, it, we just slept too hard. Or we, we, uh, we, we go into the office on Monday morning and the, and the message light on the phone's blinking and you, and, and it's the boss and he, he sounds none too happy. You watch your teenagers as they make decisions that have disaster written all over them. You, um, you sit at supper with your wife and you wonder, what could I have done that would have made our marriage better? Or you drive out of the cemetery and you wonder, why did they have to go so soon? Who needs to play a game of Clue, ladies and gentlemen, when, when our own lives contain so much mystery? We're, um, we're tempted to, to grab that little envelope out of the middle of the game board and look inside and, and find out all the answers to our questions. But we have discovered there's no game board and there's no envelope. So here we stand in the middle of life saying, if I had only known... If I had only known about that tumor, if I had only known about the economy, if I had only known about that boss, about that neighbor, about that church, if if I had only known about those friends, about that job, but we don't know. That's the problem, ladies and gentlemen. Again, the text that I read you... um, I wondered if you can sense that the Apostle Paul has grown a little hostile. He's, um, he's, he's, he's becoming a little bit combative with, his, with the people that are reading this letter. He's riled. He's, he's riled, not, not in the way that we get riled about the resurrection in the 21st century. It's not that Paul is out to debate with all of the... Um, uh, the naysayers about the truth of the resurrection. That's not what Paul's doing here, ladies and gentlemen. He is not, he is not riled because there is an argument going on. He's riled as a pastor because he understands that life is complex enough and you remove the resurrection from it and never what have I got? You take resurrection away from me. And what you leave me with is hopelessness. And so you see him entering into this dialogue and he's, he's, he's a tad upset about the, those who would suggest that there is no such thing. Life's hard enough. Remove a resurrection and it's all senseless. It's chaotic. So for him, ladies and gentlemen, the resurrection has become one grand and glorious clue. It's a clue as to how we're supposed to view and interpret and cope with life. God has left behind certain pieces of information that enable us to construct a life in which at least we can cope. Now, now, now that's kind of an understatement, but it's he, he, the, the facts that are left behind allow us to construct a life that at least can handle difficulty. They're not free from difficulty, but at least we've got enough to construct a life that can confront and, and, and handle 
struggle. You know, gang, much of the mystery of life is avoidable. And Easter is a big part of that puzzle. It's a big part of understanding how it is that I'm supposed to interpret life. You, you may have not thought about this very much, ladies and gentlemen, but, but what you believe about this day can reduce significantly the, the amount of mystery. Let me, let me show you how this works. First of all, gang, all of life is fundamentally shaped by the values that you carry around with you. You have a value system that is known only to you that has, uh, over your lifetime, become a, a certain collage of things that you piece together and it becomes the lens through which you look at life. Back in high school, you had an experience that taught you one thing, and then you went to college, and you, you, you learned something over there, and then you, you learned something with your first baby, and then you piece all this stuff together, and it becomes, it becomes a value system. Certainly not, not um, um, something we think about a lot, but inside, ladies and gentlemen, there is something that you carry around with you that helps you interpret all of life. It's the lens through which you look at everything that you experience. Values are the things that, that steer us through life. Folks, everything you do in life is somehow your attempt to get what is valuable to you. And, and for you, some things are valuable and to others, some other things. Some are, You've got things that you're willing even to die for. Some other things you're not willing to die for. But you have, over a course of a lifetime, pieced together this lens through which you interpret life. It's called a value system. Or at least that's what I call it. Um, you, you make decisions, you make choices based on that thing that you have put together over the course of a lifetime. I am not going to send my kids to to private schools because I'm going to learn a second language because I'm giving my money to that agency because I am not going to vote for that referendum because and everything on the other side of those becauses will show you a value system. And you interpret life with that thing, ladies and gentlemen. And it's known only to you. It's privatized and individualized. Everybody's got their own. We've pieced the thing together through the course of a lifetime. And we look at life through it. You know, the, the Bible never uses the term value system. The, 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 the term that the Bible uses is the term treasure. You know, um, the value of a treasure is an assigned value. You know, that's why... That's why one man's trash is another man's treasure. You know, when your house is burning down, what do you grab? You grab your husband before the dog or after the dog, you know? It's an assigned value, but it's yours. And you have put that thing together over the course of a lifetime, and it has become the, the, the way that you interpret life. You got one. I, I probably don't know about it. You may not be fully aware of what it is, but you've got one. And much of life is shaped by the way that you view life through that value system of yours. 
The Bible says where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Where your value system is, that's where your heart can be found, ladies and gentlemen. Your, your psychological, spiritual center of gravity is, is contained in that value system that you've got. Where you got it from, I don't know. How you got it, I don't know. But you got it. I got it. And so life gets interpreted through it, through looking at life through it. Now, here's the second clue that, as to the uh, how to interpret life. The first is that we, all of our lives are shaped to this value system. But secondly, there is no greater determiner of that value system than your view of eternity. Nothing will shape your view of your your value system more than your view of eternity. Gang, let me back up. There is no voice that you listen to more closely than your own. That's that value system thing, and that thing, there's no greater shaper of it than your view of eternity. Eternity is the best values clarification tool you could ever want. You know, gang, have you ever listened to um, Negro spirituals? There's a lot in those spiritual, those, those great songs they talk about over yonder and, and across the Jordan and, and, and uh, at the campground. Because during this, this sad, unfortunate period in American history, slaves endured their present because they understood something about their future. But I want to suggest to you, they're not the only ones. We all think like that, ladies and gentlemen. Now, unfortunately, in our culture, we have presided over the death of the afterlife. We are being told that there is no of those eternity things. This is all there is, this three score and ten. And boy, are there ever some consequences of that. We are being told that... What you experience in this time frame is all that there is, so you can well imagine how important things like, like comfort and success and ease and pleasure and recreation have become. Do you see what I'm, I'm saying, ladies and gentlemen? Your view of eternity shapes the value system that influences the choices and behaviors that you make now. We live in the 21st century in the age of the Epicurean. I mean, who's telling us that there's no eternity and this is all there is? Then, gosh, my, for heaven's sakes, let's suck as much thrill out of this thing as we can get. But there are others who believe differently. They've adjusted their lives to reflect their understanding of eternity and, and what they need to do to prepare for it. Gang, I'm simply saying that eternity is values classic clarification 101. Your value system has been incredibly influenced by what you think is off in your future. And we've been influenced by our culture, the age of rationalism, to think that perhaps there, there isn't one. I'm saying, gang, that every choice that you make tomorrow morning and this afternoon is influenced by your value system that's been highly shaped by your view of eternity. 
You make choices. You make decisions in light of what you value. You listen to nobody's voice any closer than you listen to your own. And that voice is one that you've given yourself. And it has been influenced by what you think of eternity. Now, here's the third piece of data. Nothing shapes your views of eternity like your understanding of the resurrection. Gang, um, work backward with me for a minute. If I'm right about these three things, and you'll, you'll have to determine that over lunch today, but if the resurrection is the thing that shapes your view of eternity, and the view of eternity is what is the thing that shapes your value system, and your value system is the thing that uh, leads you to make the choices that you make and the conduct that you have and the behavior that you that you have, then, ladies and gentlemen, there's several things that we can say. First of all, this Easter business really gets important. We can say that. And we can also say that choices and behaviors tell us what you believe about the resurrection. Gang... Christianity's claim to resurrection is something that transports us into eternity. That's why the Apostle Paul is so riled in 1 Corinthians 15. This pastor understands that if you remove from me this hope of resurrection, everything in life is going to be influenced by that. Can you imagine, ladies and gentlemen, what it, is, what it has done to, um, to our ethics, for instance? To our, uh, to our view of success? To our desire for health? By undercutting the idea of resurrection? And, and so Paul reacts to the people who he wants to remove the resurrection and says, wait a minute. If all that Christianity does for you is give you a better life now, which it does, but if that's all it does, then for heaven's sakes, we're the most pitiable among men. That's what he says, ladies and gentlemen, in verse 19. Folks, the only way you can make any sense out of this life with all of its mysteries and all of its difficulties is to look at it at from the vantage point of eternity. What we are being told is that the tip of the iceberg is all there is. This, this big old thing underneath the, the water line is not there, according to some. Can you imagine then how important the tip becomes? And how important it is to gather resources and wealth and comfort and ease and health and all of those things that seem to be the vital piece of importance in our culture today. Why do you think that is? Because, ladies and gentlemen, it's the resurrection that, first of all, tells you that there's more than this life. Secondly, it says there is something beyond the tip of the iceberg in fact, you've only got the tip, and the thing underneath it is bigger and longer and, and different. It's just incredibly different. 
So what you're doing on the tip needs to take into account everything underneath it, or everything beyond it, or everything in the offing. And in the light of the rest of the iceberg, I interpret events, I interpret disappointments, I interpret losses and troubles, and, and I, I interpret life. I can stand in the middle of this life and interpret it in the light of an eternity that has been described for me by the resurrection. You know, um, maybe this verse rings a bell with you. It's in Romans chapter 8 and another one of Pauline's, or Paul's letters. He says, For I do not consider the present sufferings to be worthy to be compared to the glory that awaits us. Do you see what the Apostle Paul is doing, gang? I don't consider this even worthy to compare to what waits. Do you see what he's doing? He's interpreting everything that he experiences now in light of an eternity that he believes in that has been described for him by a resurrected Christ. So, folks... What you think about Easter is pretty doggone important. In fact, I I would even suggest to you that it influences every decision that you make. Every behavior, every choice, every ethical posture, all of it, ladies and gentlemen, is influenced by your understanding of eternity And that's given to you by your understanding of the resurrection. You know, I I need more than than a lecture on being thankful. I I need more than a sermon on faith. I, I need more than one episode of Dr. Phil. I need the big picture. Here it is. I need to set my life down in the midst of a context of the sure-to-come realities of eternity. And nothing gives me that. Nothing allows me to do that. Nothing enables me to do that better than a confidence in the physical, bodily, literal resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. I want to take my life and set it down in the context of sure-to-come realities of eternality. And nothing enables me to do that better than my confidence, my understanding, my view of what Jesus Christ accomplished on this day. Gang, in one of my absolute all-time favorite verses from the Apostle Paul, I read it. It's verse 32. I love and understand this is in the context of Paul talking about resurrection. And he says this in verse 32. If in the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me? If the dead do not rise, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do you understand his logic, ladies and gentlemen? Do you understand Pauline theology, ladies and gentlemen, at that point? You know what he says? It's pretty simple. Hey, 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 wait a minute. What are you saying if you take away the... Are you saying to me that I fought with wild beasts in Ephesus for nothing? Is that what you're telling me? You mean that I've constructed my life and it's include fighting those wild beasts and Corinth and all that business and, and there ain't no resurrection? You take away from me the resurrection and I might as well eat and drink and be buried if tomorrow I die. You know what you've done when you take that away from me, says Paul? 
you have, you have removed the very motive for my life. Am I nuts to do what I've done? I mean, am I crazy for him because I lived the life that I lived? Because I can tell you this, if there's no resurrection, you're right, I'm nuts. I should have never fought those wild beasts. I should have never done this and done that and gone there and gone here. I should have done none of that if there is no resurrection. But if there is, all of that makes sense. It all makes sense if Christ is risen. All of the sacrifices, all of the endurance, all of the choices, all of the behavior. If Christ be risen, if he be not risen, I'm a fool. And so are you. Let me tell you about other fools. Her name was Maria. She was a Russian nun and she walked with a 15-year-old terrified Jewish girl into a a gas chamber at Ravensbrook, and as they walked, she turned to the little 15-year-old girl and said, Christ is risen. There is nothing to fear. Well, Maria, you're an idiot. You're an idiot to make choices like that. Why have you done that? Tell me, ladies and gentlemen, how do you explain choices like that on the part of Maria the nun? One of my favorite stories is about Dunkirk. You know, don't confuse Dunkirk with Normandy. Normandy... Dunkirk occurred in 1940, long before the United States ever entered World War II. Dunkirk was um, the result of the British's first attempt to land in France. And it was a disaster. The Germans just beat the daylights out of them and sent them back into the ocean in the English Channel. And so they're running like scared puppies and they're gathering on the coast of France. And the British government sends over this ocean liner by the name of Lancastria to take all these people or some of these people back. And it's escorted by three destroyers and all this business. And it's loaded down with soldiers and Red Cross people and diplomats and their families and their children. It's just loaded down with people. And right as it pulls up anchor, the Germans send three dive bombers after the Lancastria. And one of them drops a bomb right down the funnel of the, of the ship. Blows a huge hole in the side and the thing begins to list and sink. There are hundreds of people in the bottom of that boat. And so a Roman Catholic priest finds a rope, ties it on him, and lowers himself down the funnel, down to all these people that are dying. None of them are going to get out alive. The other people are diving in the water and trying to save themselves, and they get picked up after they swum through oil and fire and all that business. And they, and they get to the, to the shore safely, and they, they're being interviewed, and they say, the thing that kept us hanging on was hearing those men sing hymns as that boat sank. Tell me, ladies and gentlemen, how do you explain choices like that? What rational reason is there for actions like that? The resurrection. Ladies and gentlemen, it's the resurrection that shapes my view of eternity. And my view of eternity gives me my value system. And my value system leads me to make every choice and every behavior that I've ever made. So you know what? I, I'm really glad you're here this morning because what you think of what went on today, not, not from us, certainly not from me, but what you think about Easter 
is one of the most important conclusions that you'll come to, whether it be pro or con. Because if it's con, ladies and gentlemen, you know, I'll join you at the bar. If there's no resurrection, where are we going to drink next? That's what the Apostle Paul says. Let me, let me wrap all this up by um, taking you back to the game of Clue. Unfortunately, there's been another murder. Yes. But this time we know the victim's name. We know how it was done, where it was done, and by whom. The, um, the instrument of death was, was Rome's cruelest weapon, crucifixion. The victim's name was Jesus of Nazareth. And the place that it took, where it was, happened was on a hill called Golgotha. And the who, that is the whodunit, that would be us. It was our sin that led to this murder. But the good news is, ladies and gentlemen, the deceased in this case stayed dead only three days. And that one event has changed the course of human history. I challenge you, read your history books. That one event has changed the course of human history. So, folks, if you, um, if you listen to eternity and rightly define it, then you can stand in the middle of life with all of its, with all of its um, regrets and you can... Smile. Yeah, there was a lot of things you did that you shouldn't have done. And there was a lot of things you should have done that you didn't do. But all the while, God was up to something that was ridding us of the one stain that was our biggest problem in the first place. Our sin. If you believe all that, here's how this is going to work. If you believe all this stuff about a crucified Christ who was dead and buried three days and then he arose from the dead, here's how this is going to work. You believe that, and it will adjust how you defined eternity. And then your view of eternity is going to change your value system. And then once your value system gets changed, every choice, every behavior, every piece of conduct, every position, every decision, it's all influenced by how you view the events of this day. Ladies and gentlemen, Jesus Christ is risen. Our Father, I do pray that you'll use these observations, these thoughts to to help us think through again all the beauties and the wonders of the Christian gospel. A message that tells us that the grave does not have the final word. The grave only has the next to the final word. There's one more word. And it's yours. 
a word of victory, a word of conquest, a word of deliverance, a word of hope. O God, You are the God of consummate hope. And the Christian gospel is a message of consummate hope. And we are a people who can maintain consummate hope in the face of the mysteries of this life. Lord, use all that's been said to make us into a a new people, a different people, a changed people. For Jesus' sake, in whose name we pray.